Hi everyone, this is Tracy Fenton, founder of World Blue, and welcome to the Freedom at Work podcast. I'm here to teach you how to think with a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, and finally, how to build a freedom-centered culture for your team or workplace. This podcast is about answering one key question. How can you, as a leader, use freedom rather than fear to unleash the full potential of individuals, teams, and organizations in order to achieve breakthrough results and change the world for the better? If you want to explore the answers, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Great to be with you today. As our listeners know, here at World Blue, we teach leaders our proven Freedom at Work leadership model, which is all about how to lead yourself and others with freedom rather than fear and control. Yet one of the biggest fears facing leaders right now during these turbulent times is how to communicate effectively. With so many hot issues, how do you speak in a way that is confident, clear, and achieves what you want your message to achieve? That's why I'm so delighted to have James Rosebush, author of the best-selling book, Winning Your Audience, deliver a message with the confidence of a president with me here today. Hi, Jim. Hey, good to see you, Tracy. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about Jim and why he knows how to deliver a clear and confident message. James Rosebush is the founder and CEO of the international advisory firm, Growth Strategy, Inc., focused on management strategies, finance, marketing, and communications that results in measurable growth for Fortune 500 companies as well as startups. He is the best-selling author of three books, the one we'll be speaking about today, Winning Your Audience, which was published in April of this year. And he is also the author of two other bestsellers, True Reagan, What Made Ronald Reagan Great and Why It Matters, which is a rare look into the U.S.'s 40th president's mysterious character, as Jim discerned it from his years working for Reagan. His first book, First Lady, Public Wife, about Nancy Reagan, was lauded as the first book that assessed the non-elected job of First Lady. Previously in his career, Jim worked at the White House as President Reagan's point man on philanthropic and public-private partnerships. He was also the longest-serving chief of staff to the First Lady, Nancy Reagan. In this role, he was one of a small group of top aides to President Reagan and served as a member of the president's historic communications team. He also managed all the official activities of the First Lady, including press and media, scheduling projects, and policy, as well as the official functions held in the White House. Jim also managed worldwide state visits for the Reagans, traveled with them, and negotiated with host country government leaders, including China, Japan, Korea, France, England, and Germany. Also, and I find this fascinating, he negotiated with Russian officials for the historic bilateral meeting between Reagan and then-President Gorbachev. Jim has lectured and taught as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and George Washington Universities on corporate policy issues and the history of philanthropy. His weekly columns on leadership and public speaking appear on businessinsider.com and in Real Leaders Magazine. Jim resides here in Washington, D.C., where I also live, with his wife of 46 years. They have two grown daughters and six grandchildren. 
Jim coaches business leaders to become high impact speakers, and you can reach him through his websites, impactspeakercoach.com and growthstrategy.us. Jim, so excited to have you with us here today to talk about winning your audience. So thank you so much for inviting me, Tracy. I appreciate it. And thank you for that gracious introduction. Oh, well, it's just incredible the life you've lived so far. And we're just so honored and delighted to have you here sharing your wisdom and insights. So with this book, Winning Your Audience, Jim, what's the problem you're seeing with leaders and how they communicate that inspired you to write this book? So we live in a toxic environment. That's no surprise to anyone that I should say that in terms of communication and speaking and reaching our constituents, our stakeholders, our shareholders, our customers, our consumers. And the environment is extremely challenging for corporate leaders, for educators, really for anyone, for a mom and dad even talking to your kids or getting them to be disciplined in the way that you think they should. We have a couple of major obstacles in conquering this problem. And one is that we often don't understand that what we say is not necessarily heard by the recipient in the same way we think we're saying it. Mm-hmm. Now, let me give you an example of that. So when I negotiated with the Chinese, for example, at one time we were in Beijing for, it seemed like endless days negotiating with the Chinese and everything that we asked for was met with no. And it went on and on and on. And we had to sit through banquets, untold number of banquets being served, a uh, high level of ceremonial food, which they offered to us as an honor, but I never really established the taste for sea slugs or monkey head soup or things like that. So I realized that we had to leave basically Beijing and we thanked our host, but we knew that flying back to the White House, that this was going to be an international crisis of some import and that we had failed. And when we walked into the situation room, when we got back, We were heralded with applause and we had no idea why this would be the case because we thought basically we were going to lose our jobs because we had failed at what we were supposed to do with this negotiation. And we said, well, why are you applauding? And they said, because every single point you asked for, they cabled back to us that they accepted. So I recognize this is a great lesson that what we were saying wasn't necessarily being heard in the same context. And we become very absorbed with our own message, sometimes spoken in in anger, sometimes in jest, but we don't really grasp that what we're saying is not, probably 99% of all cases is not being heard the way we think it's being heard. Another example was negotiating with the Soviets. This is really in the early days of Gorbachev before his staff came on and negotiating with the previous administration's team. Again, everything was that we asked for was no, and they tried fervently to impress us and convince us that the Soviet economy was the most valid, the most vibrant, and the most successful economy in the world, and that no one in the Soviet Union was suffering from any untoward circumstances. Of course, we knew that wasn't true. I personally had been to the Soviet Union before as a Rotary International Scholar and on another trip, 
And I had seen it with my own eyes. And yet they wanted to pursue the big lie theory. So we had to stick with, I think what is unique about, and I love your theme of democracy and freedom in the workplace. I think sticking with the truth about what we know based on freedom and democracy is we also need to grasp when we communicate that, how it's being heard. We can talk more about this, but there's context involved, the self-knowledge, which is critically important, which a lot of people lack, a lot of leaders lack. Do you understand what you're saying may not be heard in the way you think you want it to be heard? I'll stop there. That's one fundamental challenge that makes this communication environment and practice so extraordinarily difficult right now. Well, let's go deeper into that because I think a lot of leaders, you know, as I talk with the leaders that we work with, they're very concerned about how do I make sure that what I'm trying to communicate is what's being heard? So how do we do that? How do we as leaders, obviously we can't control everything. We can't control how people hear every message, but what advice would you give to top leaders who are trying to communicate key messages right now in their workplaces during these challenging times to really make sure it lands in the right way? So the answer to that is point number two. So we talked about the first point, right? Recognizing that what you're saying is not necessarily what is being heard. Number two is just as important. And when you say a lot of business leaders are concerned, my heart goes out to them, but I have to say, I wish more were concerned mm. because every day you see, you probably saw the announcement today that Elon Musk has fired all of his communications team and he's managing communication. Well, that's a scary thought. I think that there are other CEOs that the chairman of, and CEO of Boeing lost his job. These are all recent. The General Electric CEO, Larry Culp, he had a 10% drop in the equity value of his company because of his poor performance in communication. My wish is that more corporate leaders were concerned about what they were saying and how it was being received. So here's point number two. The way you can pave how your message is being received is by creating a bridge to your audience. Mm. And the only way, you know, actors are taught to bring down the fourth wall. So what is the fourth wall? The fourth wall is the wall of resistance from your audience. So if you're an actor and you're on stage, you have stage right, you have stage left, and you have the stage behind you. You have the wall behind you. But the wall in front of you is the wall of opposition. So almost anything, when you start to communicate, whether it's corporate earnings, whether it's layoff and furloughs, you're acquired another company, or you've got great news, or you're launching a new initiative, you have to understand that there's going to be resistance among the people, and not just the media, but people who are hearing you. Now, how do you break that down? You must build a bridge to your audience. Otherwise, what you're communicating is never going to cross that bridge into the minds, hearts, and consciousness of your listeners. You must build that bridge. So third point, how do you do that? The way you do that is to empathize with your audience and understand who they are. And I see this as being a tragically enormous problem and a very deep one today. A lot of people lack the ability to empathize with other people. Mm -hmm. So what I try to do 
is to educate myself about my audience. Who's in the audience? Are they suffering from a particular issue? Are they mad about something? Are they particularly educated on a certain point? One time I was speaking at the Gerald Ford Presidential Library, and it was at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and I had unwisely assumed that my audience was going to be all students. And so I planned my remarks to focus on things that they'd be interested in. When I got up on stage, it was a standing room only audience. But when I looked out at the audience, they were all senior citizens. Oh, goodness. Yes. (laughs) So my fault for not doing my homework and understanding who would be in the audience. That's the beginning of empathy. I asked the famous stage and screen actress, Mary Martin, one time, we were on the South Lawn of the White House, and I said to her, what makes you so successful on stage? Why are you so popular? And she threw her arms around me, and she said, Jim, she said, I was born in Texas. That's number one. And number two, (laughs) I was born loving people, and they love me back. Mm. And I think that's really the root of empathy. If you care enough about your audience to discern, research, figure out what their greatest fears are, their greatest concerns are, and address those, you will have built your bridge, you will have crossed it, and the audience will understand what you're saying. And moreover, they'll have faith and confidence in you as the deliverer of that message and your authenticity. I love that point on the bridge and the empathy because I think so often leaders just kind of bark out their message and it's just kind of like, here's what I think, here's what I have to say. And either you can take it or leave it rather than really having that bridge of empathy and understanding and fear. I know myself as a speaker, I speak all over the world like you do. It takes that extra work. Sometimes I've gotten it right. Sometimes I haven't. But when you can really understand the pain and the challenges of your audience and connect with it, it really does create a bridge that wins your audience. So that is absolutely critical. Let's talk, Jim, about, you bring out something very important in the book about fear. And here at World Blue, we teach that leading with freedom rather than fear starts with a mindset. It's having a mindset that operates from a place of freedom rather than fear. And you have a chapter in your book about addressing fear, the mindset of fear, and how to master fear as a speaker. And I know a lot of leaders do have fear that comes up. I know I have my own fears that come up when I speak. So what are your thoughts on fear and the mental strategies that we can use to overcome fear so that we can really, as leaders, communicate at our best? Yeah, so this is a biggie, right, Tracy? So 75% of all people in the world suffer from glossophobia. So it has its own name. (laughs) Most afflictions do, right? Yes. This is a fascinating problem. And it's really the first issue to focus on if you want to be a great speaker. And I'm talking about, there are people, Tracy, that are even afraid to pick up a telephone and make a sales call. There are people that would rather stay in bed under the covers then get on a sales call or to talk to their boss or to talk to their kids. There is a tremendous fear that what you're saying won't be accepted. And one of the things we do in the coaching that I do, I have to admit, I kind of dig deep with my coaching students because, and I use this example, you've seen people, and I'll give you a specific example, when 
Jeb Bush was running for president, you saw that he almost had an inability to put two words together cogently and coherently. Well, you know, Jeb Bush is a very smart guy and he has a lot of experience. And of course, he's spoken at thousands of occasions and given thousands of speeches. But in the debates, he was very broken and unconfident as a debater and a speaker. Mm -hmm. And I watched this phenomenon and knowing the Bush family, I look in the audience and there I see that he brought his mother along. Now, this was probably a device maybe that was, he was advised to do this, but it was a very bad piece of advice because the Bush family is very affected by a powerful matriarch who would be because I came under her wrath as well. I know that she and I, I loved her. She was a, a remarkable person, but she had very strongly held beliefs about everything and anything. And that included how you spoke. So I'm just using this as an instructive example. Yeah. Sometimes our fear and our lack of confidence goes back to our growing up time when perhaps a parent, a teacher, a coach, or someone was too hard, perhaps indignant with us about the way we were speaking, how we presented. Now, look, I grew up with a father who taught Dale Carnegie. So I know wherever I speak. So my dad, of course, every time I had to give a speech, you know, a little speech as a kid, he was right there judging it and critiquing it. So I had to overcome the fact that my dad was not in my audiences anymore. And I didn't have to fear his judgment. So I understand that this is just one element of where fear comes from and lack of confidence, that you may be judged. And this unconscious and subliminal thought and influence is still there, even though the person may have passed away or you long since had had broken off this relationship or naturally with a person. These things really have to be addressed. And I will tell you, Tracy, that I've had people say to me, you changed my life. Now, that doesn't mean, for which I have to take absolutely no responsibility or credit at all. But what they mean by that is getting a feeling of freedom and release from being fearful and lacking confidence in speaking not only affects your ability to speak to a crowd or to an individual more confidently, it gives you a whole new sense of identity and confidence and leadership ability that you didn't have before. So I would say, and I was just earlier today, I was asked by a high school class, would I come and speak to them? Well, of course, about speaking. Of course, I love the fact that they're even wrestling with public speaking, because I think it should be a required course for everyone. But I think once you, and it's something that I observe, and I'm curious about, when people gain confidence to speak, stand, and deliver, they have a newfound, solid base of conviction about their own personal identity. That, mm-hmm. Now, that's just the beginning of where we talk about. There's a lot more to say about fear, but I'll stop there for a minute. No, that's wonderful. And it's so true when you can get at those root fears that may have been hindering a person and address them and bring them to the surface, it can really free up a person to get on stage, own who they are, own their message, and speak confidently and winningly, as you say. So going with this 
theme of the fear right now in the workplace. I was just talking with one of our members the other day and she was saying to me that there's so much fear in the workplace right now about what you can say and what you cannot say because of all these hot issues going on and the consequences that can come from saying the wrong thing. You say the wrong thing, you could be fired the next day. And so one of our members was communicating to me about this, just the heightened level of fear going on in the workplace right now. So how can we as leaders help turn down the temperature on this, help eliminate some of these communication fears in our workplace? Well, I think it's obviously a critical question. And I think that there are a couple things. First of all, don't be so proud as to not educate yourself about things that you are required to say and not say. Mm -hmm. I've seen and I've worked with many people who didn't take the time to consider what the impact of their words and how they express them, how they can be taken. And it might seem that it's a it's an overwrought condition that we're in, in terms of having to pay attention. But on the other hand, I think there's a lot of good coming out of people gaining more self-knowledge about what they should say, how they should say it, what context they should say it in, and how it might be received. I think we have a long way to go in that, to be completely frank. I think that we need to do this. So the first step is to really make sure that we are educated about what is expected of us in terms of our intercommunication in the workplace. I think that's critically important. And I think the second part, however, is our own authenticity. And you might say, well, those two really run counter with each other because my own authentic self says to me, I don't want to talk that way, or I don't want to be forced into using language that is foreign to me. Well, I think that you have to really dig down deep on this second point of your own authenticity and your own genuineness and your care of the other person. So we talked about empathy, right, as one of the keys to relating to your audience and getting your audience to really buy into your message and the way you're communicating it. So I think that this idea of empathy is critically important in helping us, let's say that we're in a situation where we have to be increasingly sensitive about or thoughtful about our language and what we're saying. Well, shouldn't we have the humility to say, I'm willing to do that because I care more about the other person that I'm talking to than my own viewpoint or my own personality. But I'm telling you, it takes humility. It mm-hmm. takes resisting pride. And this is a very difficult thing. And, and I want to add a point here, Tracy, too. I have been approached by groups of millennials in particular that have important jobs in major companies. And they've asked me, they said, Mr. Rosebush, could you help us? We don't know how to relate to other people. Mm. And I've encountered this. I have to tell you, Tracy, I've encountered this numerous times. Could we engage you to help our company? We're relationship people, we're salespeople, whatever. And we don't know how to relate to other people. We go out before COVID, we go out to bars at night, but we stand in one corner. We don't know how to start a conversation. And I said, I get it. I get it because I've seen so much of it. I've seen so much and it seems to be reside in a kind of compounded way 
with millennials. And I said, yes, I have one really good tip for you. And that is to be curious. And they're like, well, what does that mean? I mean, yeah, I'm curious. I said, are you really curious about the other person? Okay, uh, what do you want us to do? And I said, I'm going to tell you, that's my tip. Now I'm going to give you the strategy and basically more the tactics to use. So when you, let's say you approach another person, you start the conversation by saying, oh, nice to meet you. Where were you born? And watch this. The other person will respond, oh, I work in yeah, distribution <laughs> uh, down you know, on Lower Fifth Avenue. Then you come back. No, I didn't mean that. No, where were you actually born? Oh, oh, you want to know where I was born? Oh, well, I was born in Chicago. Well, all of a sudden, that opens up opportunity for conversation. Because I'm sure at one point in your life, and even if you haven't been to Chicago yourself or didn't grow up there, you always wanted to go there. So you start a conversation based on mutual shared territory. This is the way you start a relationship. You may start at an end one in five or 10 minutes, but at least you're throwing the ball to the other person and you're saying to them, I'm interested enough in you to want to know your story, the story of your life. And usually when you ask people questions, they're flattered by it and that will get them to talk. And I'll tell you, one of the most read articles that I've ever written in my life was my article about the Queen of England and how she's a master of communication. And I'm going to tell you how, but that that article, (laughs) which I think it was on Business Insider, you know, had like tens of hundreds of thousands of people who read this and many commented on it. I was surprised because I guess I shouldn't be because it's an American column and Americans are you know, taken with royalty. But the times that I spent, that I had the great honor of spending quite a bit of time with the Queen of England, and you're never allowed to approach her and start a conversation. It's Mm -hmm. just royal protocol. So she is the master. She comes up to you and she'll say, now, Jim, so this is a good classic example. So I had arranged for HP to make a state gift on behalf of the people of the United States to the Queen of England. So she said, Jim, now, that gift of that computer, that was very, that was a wonderful gift. I want to thank you so much for being the person who was arranging that. And what do you think? How should we really use that? So here she was, she's the master at yes. starting a communication and developing a relationship based on what? Yes. Curiosity. Being curious. I love that story and I love that tip. And I find that most of the time people are so self-consumed, you know, that they don't know how to be curious about someone else. I mean, I'm sure you've had this situation, Jim, and I've had it traveling all over the world and going to lots of networking events and opportunities, conferences. And it's just shocking to me how many times I'm meeting people and I'm very curious about people. I love asking people questions. I love your point about asking them where they're born, where they're from, what lights them up. There's so many great questions we can ask. And I'm shocked at how I can stand there and talk with someone for 15, 30, an hour or longer, but they never ask you a question about you. Never. 
And it's so startling to me how often it's just these one-sided conversations and how we have to learn as people to be curious about each other and to have this give and take in our conversations and in our flow. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts, Tracy, are that it is a massive problem. Yes, and it is. I'm actually, I'm pretty, I'm a very optimistic person, but I'm pretty discouraged about this because you know why? It affects culture. Yes. It, it affects our whole climate. And so often, like you mentioned, I'll say, you know, that person knows nothing about me because they never ask anything about me. And it's fine. I don't need everyone to know right. about Yeah, yeah. But it is noticeable that people, they want to push their own agenda. But look at the queen. Let's go back to her example for a minute. Now, you would think, why would the queen be interested in me? In her lifetime, she is the one world leader who has watched, observed, and been engaged in world affairs for longer than any other human being who has ever lived. 65 years, she's been reading her red boxes every morning about what's going on in the world. There is actually no other human being that has had that length of involvement or history Mm -hmm. with what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. So why would she be interested in talking to me about what my view is or what I was drinking that night when she took us to dinner at Trader Vic's in San Francisco or that when I went to her party on her incredible yacht, the Britannia, and she talked to me and she said, because she knew I'd been working in that case when she came for a state visit for two weeks to support her and, and her whole group. And she said, now tonight, Jim, she said, you don't have to do any work. It's my party. <laughs> and will I ever forget that? Okay. Now, why is it that we do need to be like that? Why is it that we do need to have that kind of grace and that we need to understand these tips about how to do it? You know, because if you don't, you're leaving the riches of the world and human interaction in the dustbin. You're living a life that lacks. It lacks the diversity, the color, the dimension that you can get by learning from other people about their life stories, about the things that they have, the ladders that they've climbed, the adversities they've had. These are all things that you should be interested in. And as a result of it, you form productive human relationships, whether it's you're going to go jogging or play golf or tennis with someone or whether you're going to work for them or they're going to work for you. These are the ways that we build productive relationships that then may come back to us in terms of new business. Mm -hmm. Could be, these are people who could save our lives. Mm -hmm. These are people who could, these are bankable relationships, but we have to develop in young people and young leaders this key, be curious. Yes. I love what you just said. It is being curious. And it's also, to me, it's being loving. And it's also recognizing that everyone has worth, regardless of your title or position. We all have a story to say. We all have worth. And to be curious, like you're saying, and take that time 
to get to know other folks and other people can tell from Iowa folks <laughs> and get to know others and really take an interest and and people love to share and people have so much to share. So I love your point on that, Jim. And I want to go to another part of the book, Winning Your Audience, where you talk about the architecture of a great speech. And I know myself and many, many leaders, we have to give, you know, that perfect speech. And so what advice would you give? Maybe a leader's listening right now and they have a speech they need to give. Maybe it's a speech on a contentious issue or something they're uncomfortable with. What is the architecture of a great speech? So I love this. And I learned it from Ronald Reagan. And don't let anyone fool you into thinking that Ronald Reagan was a great communicator just because he had good speech writers. He framed every speech that he gave. A lot of the speeches, of course, that he wrote in longhand and what on yellow legal pads when he was representing uh, management at General Electric. He was traveling the rails, going to the factory gate. He wrote all of his own speeches. He wrote a lot of his own speeches when he was governor. When he got to the White House, he had a fabulous team, but he framed his speeches. Now, this is what I call the architecture of great speech. So you want to frame your speech. And you want it to result in a solid framework that can be a bulwark. Bull can really support and be a bulwark of your thoughts, your ideas, your concepts, and what you want to convey. Okay, now, what is the specific architecture that I'm talking about? So you will read in my book, I think there's seven steps, critical steps. And I'll just tell you the beginning and the end. So there's a little kind of what's the opposite of a coda. There's a little preface to yes. your speech. And this is something that people usually leave out or they don't understand how important it is. That is to say, good morning, good afternoon. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad to be here with you today in St. Louis. And how about that baseball team? Make the audience feel that you at least know where you are. Yes, and yes. you have a relationship geographically to that place. Also, a part of the preface or building the foundation and the architecture of your speech is that I've had on many occasions, I'm sure you have too, Tracy, the person who's introducing you might even forget your name or they might say, (laughs) we're happy tonight to have a person who blah, 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 and they give you a nice introduction, but they never say your name. So I'm always telling my coaching students, never forget to say, if you need to, say, my name is Jim Rosebush, and I'm so happy to be with you here tonight. And I heard you you suffered through a tremendous tornado here last week. And wow, you're so courageous to get through that and restoring your city the way you are, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, to make yourself, first of all, open your relationship where you can be grounded and people will go, oh, well, this guy's not a jerk. Again, remember... Remember your wall of resistance. People come to see a play or a performance. And most people, most people come in and they're like, I don't want to be here. I paid too much for the ticket. Why did I have to come? It's not going to be any good. There's a lot of doubting and you need to overcome that. And the best way to do it is to start in a way that you you kind of knock that down. And then going to the end of the architecture, Reagan never left the audience uninspired. And the way he inspired the audience, 
is another element in the seven points of architecture. He used the wiser words of other pilgrims. Mm. Very often that could even include someone of another political party. He would quote FDR. He would quote JFK. He certainly quoted the founding fathers a tremendous amount. He never left, rarely left a speech without ever quoting from Thomas Paine, the great American patriot, with this sentence. Remember, we here today have the ability to begin the world over. Mm. And he believed that. So he loved to inspire. Then, just after that, so you inspire, then you ask your audience, I need you to join me. Will you join me in this fight? Will you join me in improving our investment performance? Will you join me in making sure that all of our employees get treated in a fair way? Will you join me in helping to look for new enterprises to acquire? Will you join me? It's an invitation and it's a request that you do something. Then you always leave the audience with this a challenge to them. So these are kind of the last three of the seven points of the, the rest of them you'll have to read the book to see, but these are the critical elements. And I will guarantee anyone who's listening today, if you follow the architecture of a great speech, you'll be a winner. Absolutely. In reading the book, Jim, I got so many tips. I've been speaking for 23 years all around the world and I wish I had your book (laughs) years ago. It's absolutely outstanding. Everything you shared with us today has been so substantial, so helpful. Love hearing the stories. So again, friends, with me today has been James Jim Rosebush, the best-selling author of the book, Winning Your Audience, Deliver a Message with the Confidence of a president. Thanks, Jim, so much for being with me. Thank you, Tracy. You can pick up Jim's book on Amazon or at your favorite local bookstore. You can also reach out to Jim directly about how he can help coach you to become a highly impactful, confident, and successful speaker on either of his websites, impactspeakercoach.com, that's impactspeakercoach.com, or growthstrategy.us. Again, the book is Winning Your Audience by James Rosebush. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thanks everyone for tuning in to today's show on Freedom at Work. If you like what you heard and you're interested in finding out if you're a fit to work with World Blue, here's what I invite you to do next. Head on over to worldblue.com slash call. That's world and then blue without an E, B-L-U. And book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and explore how to help you develop a freedom-centered mindset, thrive as a freedom-centered leader, or build a freedom-centered workplace culture. Remember, living, leading, and working in freedom rather than fear in order to unleash your full potential does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We have over 20 years of experience working all over the world with top leaders and brands from small businesses to Fortune 500 companies, helping them achieve results with our proven methods and courses. 
To see if we could help you do the same, head on over to worldblue.com slash call and book a call with our team now. I'm Tracy Fenton, and I can't wait to connect with you soon.